into this. Uh, the first has to do with the Global Leadership Summit, which is coming up in August. Um, we need about 15 people to go ahead and register uh, by this Friday. They've changed some of how they line up all this, but for us to qualify for some of the things that enrich the experience and the way we do this. So if you already know that you're going to come, I'm going to urge you to go ahead and sign up this week, maybe even today. That will help us on the presentation end for the summit. Uh, but we're looking forward to a great time with that. The second is um, our worship team is going to be handing out a, a little surprise here. And I want you to hold these to the end of the message. I'll explain what you do with them. It's going to be a little bit tempting to play with them during this time, but uh, you'll come to understand. We're going to celebrate a little bit here at the end of the service. So uh, I hope you're with me on this risk. But they're going to give you a glow stick that uh, I want you to hold on to for just a little while. While we're doing that, I, I want to tell you a little bit of a story, and I have a question at the end of that story. All of our towns have a section in the town dump that we now call, very euphemistically, our transfer stations. We have this section where people bring things that they want to discard that still have some kind of life in them. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to love to ride my bike to the town dump, and I, I would get uh, wheels and things that we would make go-karts out of, and we lived on a hill, so we would race those go-karts down the hill. And as, as an adult, I have, from time to time, been known to find my way into that section that some towns call the, the put-and-take station, or one town calls the, uh, the share station. Uh, just just quick show of hands. How many of you have taken something from the share station? How many of you have given something to the share station in whatever your town dump is? Uh, I, I'm not above letting you know that there have been times when I found some really good stuff in there that still had some life that I could either fix up or I was into furniture refinishing for a little while and I would make some things work that way. And uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. When we lived in Halifax a few years ago, there was one particular day we were emptying out a bunch of stuff in our, in our home, and I had a pair of skis that were really old. Now, you have to understand uh, this whole deal behind skis. I played basketball and football in high school, and the first rule for the basketball team was you could not ski during the season. If you got a sprained ankle and you were on the basketball team, you were off the team. That was the coach's rules. So I never learned how to ski until the end of high school, and uh, I married into a family where they went skiing all the time. And so it was kind of embarrassing, I think, for her folks because we would go skiing with Sue and her family, and they had all these nice ski outfits, and they had their own skis, and I would rent skis from the rental shop, and I'd wear a pair of blue jeans. And I had this idea that I had to fall one time for every dollar in order to get the most out of the experience. And since I really didn't know how to ski, I managed to more than uh, live up to that. And it was kind of embarrassing. So the first three years that Sue and I were married, we lived in Colorado. And every time her folks would come to visit, we'd go up into the mountains and we'd go skiing. And if we could scrape together a few dollars, we'd go skiing on some of the weekends with our friends. One year, Sue's folks came out and uh, her dad had found a pair of used skis that he bought for me. Now, you have to understand these used skis. They came from a rental shop. That meant they'd already been well used. Have you ever rented skis from a rental shop? At the end of the season, how do they look? They're pretty beat up. Well, I imagine that this pair of skis was at least 10 years old, and they had all the scars and the scratches. And, and then I got 15 years out of them after that point. 
I loved those old skis. One day, we were cleaning stuff out. I realized, you know, there had been enough advances with skis that when I went, I no longer wanted to ski with them. I wanted the new ones that cut better and turn better and all that. So I took these and my boots, and I took them to the share station at the Halifax dump. And I remember lining them up in a corner, hoping that somebody would see them, and maybe, beyond my wife's insistence that nobody would want these things, that maybe somebody would actually take them. And as I was walking away, I saw this boy who was about 13 or 14 years old all of a sudden get these really big eyes, and he walked over, and he starts looking at the skis, and he looks at my boots next to them, and he says, are those skis that you're leaving here? Like, I could have them? I said, absolutely. I would be so delighted if you took my skis and you took my boots. And he tried them on right there. And, and, and he was so, I was so thrilled when this kid went running over to his dad with the skis over his shoulder and the boots in his hand. He said, Dad, you're not going to believe what I found. And I hope that he got another five years out of those skis. <laughs> now, my, my question is, have you ever gone to your share station at the local town dump and found something that someone else threw away and ended up taking home and using? Something that somebody else considered of little worth, of throwaway value, or disposable. What I love about that story is that you and I live in the midst of a throwaway culture. If something has a crack in it or its value declines a little bit, we tend to get rid of it and we throw them away quickly. And sometimes our culture looks at people that way too. Our culture teaches us to look away from people whose lives have all of a sudden become broken. And the ability to look away and deliberately not notice them actually adds to the experience of brokenness that people feel. And then along comes Jesus, who gives us a different lens to look through. And Jesus gives us this lens that allows us to take a different view of broken things and broken people in life. What we discover is that when Jesus looks at people who've been broken by life, he doesn't see what many other people see. He actually sees something that is beautiful, redeemable, reusable, full of life, valuable. William MacDonald in his book, Lord, Break My Heart, says it this way, but God puts a premium on broken things, especially broken people, unquote. The gospel account we're going to look at this morning reveals that lens that Jesus looks through when he calls attention to the heart of a woman that the first century world saw as broken and as an outsider and as of having little, little value. This all came in a party that the people in this particular town would never forget. I need to explain the setting if you're not familiar with this. Some of you are familiar with this story, but for some of you, this is brand new. And so there was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders, who was a very prideful person, who invited Jesus to have dinner with him at his home. At first glance, this seems very simple, but there's so much more to the scene. Luke, the writer of this gospel, drops a number of hints for us which add flavor to the story. This particular dinner engagement occurs early in Jesus' public ministry, but it's at the point where his popularity is growing, and the opposition has not yet intensified against him. But there are things like this story that would cause a twofold reaction 
A number of the common people would be drawn to Jesus as a result of what happens here, and those who were part of the Pharisees' party would begin to become disgusted with Jesus as a result of what we find in this story. Curiosity about Jesus was running high in the villages of Galilee. There are a number of things that had happened as Luke records this part of his gospel. A Roman centurion had come to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, unthinkable in a Jewish society. Uh, Jesus had interrupted a funeral procession in order to revive a dead boy. Then John the Baptist's disciples had come asking if Jesus was the one, and the the word was getting out that, that Jesus really was the one who fulfilled all the prophecies that John had come talking about. During this whole period of time, Jesus had healed many sick people. And now this religious leader, a Pharisee, had invited Jesus over for dinner. The dinner would take place in an open courtyard visible to all the neighbors. Now, why is that so? You think of our homes in some towns around here, you have to have a half an acre or even an acre of land per house. We want to live far away from each other. We don't want to be so close that everybody knows your business, more or less. It wasn't so in in Galilee. Houses were right next to each other, stacked next to each other, and they were rather small. And so there wasn't room for an indoor eating area. For the most part, people ate outside, and they would have a courtyard. There might be a hedge around the courtyard, but the courtyard would separate the home from the next home, and people would eat outdoors. Uh, Think of it like eating on your back deck all year round. Everybody gets to see what's going on. And there might have been a row of hedges that surrounded that area, but there was a blend of of semi-privateness and openness. And there were expectations about this dinner. Simon, the Pharisee who was the host, had some expectations. And his main expectation may have been prestige gained by inviting the local hot rabbi, Jesus, to eat at his home. Simon was the Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner. It's possible that he invited Jesus simply because he was expected to. In other words, if he was the leading leading Pharisee of his city, when a new traveling teacher or rabbi would come into that town, it became his duty. He was expected to show this kind of hospitality. But you can tell from the reading of the story that he's not really sure what he thinks about Jesus or whether he endorses Jesus, but it's his obligation to invite him over to his home. Word had leaked out in this town that Jesus was coming to that particular home, and the questions ring in the backdrop. Okay, what would Jesus say to this Simon? What would the conversation be like? Did he really want Jesus there, or was he just fulfilling what was expected of him. Jesus also had some expectations. And Jesus' expectations can be summed up with two words, basic courtesy. Now now you think of the world, uh, that part of the world at that time. It was an arid culture. The roads were dirt. People went barefoot or they wore sandals. That meant when you came into somebody's home, they would usually offer you some water to wash your feet in order to get all the dust and the dirt and the grime off of your feet because they sat at a very low table and people's feet were very close to all of that, next to each other. And then sometimes they would offer some oil where they would freshen up and, they'd wipe and the oil would slick their hair back or it would make them smell a little better than they did out on the open roads. And there were some just basic courtesies that were expected that anybody would have expected at that time. That's the setting. 
On the heels of understanding that backdrop comes what John Ertberg calls a conversation without words. An unnamed woman crashes the party. She learned that Jesus was coming and that he had planned to be there, and so she also planned to crash this party. She wanted to get to as close to Jesus as possible. Luke doesn't waste any time. He tells us that she was a woman who had lived a sinful lifestyle. That is a way of openly saying, as nicely as possible, she was a prostitute. But she wanted to hear what this Jesus had to say. People have been talking about his healing power. People have been talking about the wise words that he would say. People would be talking about how this Jesus can connect you to God himself. And she'd lived this particular sinful life in that town. That meant that everybody knew her. They knew what she did for work. They knew her past. They knew her story. Her very presence would cause reactions. And then the scene unfolds. She was noticed not because of what she wore, not because of what she said, but because at one point it was what she did. And it was due to the perfume that she wore. At first, she simply stood behind Jesus, weeping. And then she began to notice the things that hadn't happened. She noticed the basic courtesies that had not been brought to Jesus, that his feet were dirty, that this particular host had not given him any oil for his head or anything like that. And so she began to weep as she knelt down over his feet. And she washed his dirty, dusty feet with her tears. And then we've tried to explain this before. She, she probably had very long hair down to her waist, and she's down on her knees, and she, and she takes her hair, literally, and starts to wipe his feet with her hair in order to dry them. Ladies, how often do you like it when men that you don't know well touch your hair? <laughs> kind of creepy, right? That's too intimate. So, this is an intimate act on her part. She's taking her hair, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. This is very personal. She didn't prepare for this. She doesn't have a basin filled with water. She doesn't have a towel. She's using what she has and improvising on the spot. And then she moves from the shadows of the courtyard to the center of the action as all eyes turn on her and toward Jesus. Luke describes this scene with increasing levels of intimacy. This woman's actions move through at least five levels of intimacy. First, she kneels down at his feet. Then she weeps over his feet, washing them with her tears. Then she dries his wet feet with her hair. And then she does the most intimate thing of all. She removes this alabaster jar of perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And here's what makes it even more intimate. The historians say that a prostitute would have kept this on a chain around her neck in a small vial, and that it was very, very expensive oil. And where would that little vial go? Right here. So it's right on her chest. I got news for it. That's, this is very personal. This is very intimate. And people are watching this, and they're stunned. Who is this person? Why is she there? Why is Jesus letting her get so close and so personal and so intimate with her? And then the perfume pours out on his feet. 
And I've got news for you. This isn't a little dab on your wrist at Macy's. It's not that kind of perfume. She pours it out on her feet, and this stuff is potent. It's sweet. It's powerful. Its aroma begins to fill the entire atmosphere, even though they're outdoors in this courtyard setting. Everybody is blown away and drawn to the power of this smell. Now, why would we say that it's that strong? Think of what she did for work. This was her calling card. She'd break out a little bit of that very expensive, very valuable perfume, and she would wear that when she would walk the streets, trying to allure other people. That's the way that she went about her business. Only this time she's using it for a very positive purpose, and she pours it all out on Jesus' feet. And then she moves to the fifth level. She starts kissing Jesus' feet. The other people at that point didn't say a word, but I imagine if they had paper, they're all kind of going like this, going, whoa, baby, this one is really hot. I can't believe what's going on here. And Luke's intimate description goes up a notch. When we think about that perfume and the way that it filled the room and the way that it called to other people, What happens next is that Jesus began to read hearts in the room, two in particular, Simon, the person who was his host, and this unnamed woman who is still kissing his feet. Simon expected that Jesus would have nothing to do with something, someone like her. The Pharisee's tradition was that uh, a Pharisee, a male Pharisee, wouldn't even look at a, a woman that wasn't part of his own family in the streets. That was their way of trying to keep themselves pure. And remember, we started off this series by talking about how Jesus works from the inside out, but the Pharisees had this outside-in uh, look at the world, and the, their fear was that there was things outside that would purify your life. And so if you're hanging around with the wrong people, they might rub off on you. And Jesus is saying the outside doesn't matter really all that much at all. God looks at the inside. The problem that we have is what comes from inside of us. That can pollute the mind, and it really reveals the thoughts and the hearts and the attitude that, that we carry with us, which can be so much more damaging. And in that moment, he starts thinking. If Jesus were really a prophet, he would know who's touching him right now, and he'd have nothing to do with her. With that thought, he had judged Jesus and saying, this can't be the real thing. This guy cannot be the Messiah. This guy cannot be a prophet sent by God. This guy cannot be a holy person because he's not living up to our traditions. In fact, he's breaking them all right here. And Jesus also read the woman's heart. And he saw that she recognized who he really was. And he saw and he heard and he felt her contrition. Simon the Pharisee operated on the outside-in principle. Jesus always operated on the inside-out principle. And one of the things I'm grateful for in regard to Jesus is that Jesus never ever considered guilt by association to be something that would chase him away and would cause him to stop loving or caring for somebody else. Imagine if Jesus operated by guilt by association. You know what that principle is about, right? It's where somebody says, I won't hang around with you because you hang around with somebody else, and boy, I don't approve of them. 
or something wrong happens in your life, and all of a sudden the people who knew you, who once cared about you, they disappear. And they no longer want to have anything to do with you because whatever rumor or scandal has gone out, they've judged you by that. I'm so glad Jesus doesn't do that. Because if he did, he would not have any association with you and he would not have any association with me. There's enough stuff in my life that Jesus probably would have said, you're embarrassing. I, I, I can't draw near to you. If, if I draw near to you, people are going to think of me the way you think about the worst stuff in your life. So much of our world operates according to the outside-in principle. It's why we've had this entire series for the past week, the past five weeks that culminates with, with today. But here's the lesson in this final scene. Jesus saw this woman as broken yet whole. And that's what he wanted to teach us about, how we can be broken and yet whole. This woman had been broken by life, yet made whole on the inside through her love for Jesus through her acceptance of him and his acceptance of her. Her way of life probably had brought some good things into her life in terms of income and had created temporary moments of intimacy, but not the kind of intimacy she really desired. It had also brought an ostracism that was profound. Yet Jesus responds to her in this scene and tells her that her sins are forgiven. And he receives that worship for her and the tears. He sees her contrition through those tears. And by the time we get to the end, he announces that even though in the world's eyes she's profoundly broken, and probably in her own eyes she's profoundly broken, in that moment she'd been made whole by God. Simon, on the other hand, appears to be whole, but needed to be broken. From all appearances, outwardly, Simon had it all together. He was educated, he was very religious, he was respected, perhaps he was wealthy, I'm not quite sure of that. But Jesus was about to reveal to him his profound spiritual poverty, that he looked good on the outside, but inside something really rotten was going on. And here's the lesson. Some things only reveal their true value when they are broken. There are some things in life that only take on their greatest value when they are broken. And Jesus saw the heart of this broken woman and saw great value. Okay, so a few minutes ago, you received one of these glow sticks. This is the time I want you to take it out and play with it. And what you've got to do is take it out of its wrapper, and to get it to work, you have to crack it. Go ahead. You get to play with glow sticks in church. Pretend it's the 4th of the July. Luke's going right after you. He's breaking that thing. It's going to shine. And what's, what's fascinating about these things is if they work right, and I hope that <laughs> this risk does work right, it's only when they are broken that they begin to shine forth. I can see some of them lighting up and some of them aren't, and maybe they're going to catch fire. But uh, what I want you to do is think about uh, this lesson, if yours works, uh, during the day. Think about that. You can wear it and you can remember back. And somebody might be saying, why are you wearing that bracelet? Well, we talked about this in church today. There are some things that really only find their greatest value when they're broken, and it's a reminder of what God does in our life. See, here's the big idea. Jesus transforms by bringing beauty out of our brokenness. 
Jesus transforms us by bringing beauty out of our personal brokenness. On the heels of that statement, Jesus tells a simple parable. Jesus was the master at creating memorable lifetime lessons. You think of the way that he did that in a number of scenarios. He healed in a synagogue on the Sabbath to reveal that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. During Passover season, when people were remembering how God had used Moses to provide manna, bread from heaven, while they were wandering through the desert, Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few small loaves. On another occasion at a wedding, he changed water into wine. And then in that final week of his earthly ministry, he rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem just days before his death on the cross. All those scenes were memorable images that Jesus created. And then he tells this parable of two debtors. It's short. It's effective. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 days wages and the other 50 days wages. Neither one had the ability to pay him back. So the money lender forgives the debts of both. And then Jesus asked this question. Now which of them will love him more? He's posed this question to Simon. And Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Now take a closer look at the story. The first key detail is that there's a gap in the, the amount of money that is owed. Ten times. The second key detail is that neither one can afford to pay the money lender back. The third key detail is that both of these debts are canceled. On the heels of that comes the question, which one will love him more? I bet that Simon wanted to withdraw at that moment, and he realized the trap was coming and it was closing quickly on his heart, his attitude. But he goes ahead and he answers. He's the host. He can't run away from his own table. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. I almost hear the hesitancy, and I suppose, Jesus. And Jesus tells him that he answered correctly. Only then does it become clear what Jesus had been doing all along. This woman had loved the Son of God more than he had by far because of how much she was forgiven. What does Jesus want from us? The end of the story comes this way. Jesus turns toward the woman and he says to Simon. Imagine, he's turning toward her, looking at her, but he's speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from time to time, the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. So not even the old Middle Eastern kiss on either side of the face. You did not put oil on my hair, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, he's telling Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. And then he has the kicker. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. What do we do with this? I think Jesus is challenging us to offer him our love. He wants our love. He, he wants us to respond to who he is and the knowledge that we have that he's the very son of God who gave up heaven itself in order to come and become God's solution to our sin problem, our rebellion problem, our brokenness problem. Offer him your past. There's nothing that he doesn't see and there's nothing that he cannot use. 
One of the great things that we've learned around here is that sometimes God takes the things that are part of our past, and when we give it to Him, He turns that into a platform to ministry to other people who are going through similar things. I know that's been true of our recovery ministries that we've had through the years. I know that that's been true of a number of people who served on our deacons team where there's a a soft spot that they grow for people who are in similar situations. I know that's true of the people who are in our grief share ministry. They've gone through great loss, great grief, and rather than running away from that experience, they run into it and say, I'd like to take what I've learned and help other people who are going through the same thing. And offer him your brokenness. Do you know what we mostly do with brokenness in our culture? We hide it. I don't want you to see mine. You don't want me to see yours. We hide it. We pretend it's not there. But the truth is we're not that far from brokenness at any time. On the back of your notes, I had a a quote from Brene Brown. She spoke at the Leadership Summit a few years ago. This is one of the things that she wrote in a TED Talk or or said in a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability. She said, we are those people. That's the truth. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair from being one of these or those people. The ones we don't trust the ones that we pity, the ones that we don't let our children play with, the ones that bad things just seem to happen to, the ones that we don't want living next door. I think Jesus wants to take down all of our pretensions and be real and acknowledge that we either have been broken at different levels of life or that we're one step away from being broken. And when we give that to him, He does amazing things. That's what this unnamed woman was teaching Simon who thought he knew it all. And when we ignore the reality that we live in a broken world and brokenness touches us, we become inauthentic. But when we allow God to have those things and we give them back to him, he transforms them because he takes the brokenness of our world and he transforms them into things that are beautiful. Think about this while you wave your glow stick throughout the day. Let's pray. God, I thank you that this is a place where we can be real and where in increasing ways we dare to be honest with each other and that this is a place where we can acknowledge that In this room, we're a group of people who may look good on the outside, but we never have everything all together. At one level or another, there's something that pushes us to the limits of our capacities, or there are things that we can't solve, whether it's a wayward child, a parent who's losing his or her memory and and we're exhausted from caring and taking care of them, whether it's the neighbor across the street who continues to make life difficult for us, whether it's the person who's struggling with a chemical addiction or an alcohol addiction or a sex addiction and doesn't know how to break the hold. Lord, as we give these things to you and acknowledge that we all need help, 
I pray that you will allow us to discover the Jesus who loves us and the Jesus who continually reminds us that he will transform our lives by bringing beauty into the midst of our brokenness. Thank you for being a God who changes us from the inside out. Give us the resilience and the determination to press on with our faith, to become a part of a group of people who are learning together, sharing our lives together, and wrestling with Scripture together so that you can transform our minds and our hearts and make us beautiful in your eyes. And we ask that you do all of these things as we continue to become a community of faith together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite our ushers to come and we'll...